and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Happy Saturday, everybody. This is Arizona's Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. And if you haven't already noticed, I know Steve has noticed, of course. Mitch Varell is here along with Steve Zinsmeister. We are not in the auction community studios today. We are on remote, Steve. Where are we? We are out at State Farm Stadium. We are witnessing, uh, well, at least my first uh, experience of Cardinals training camp this year. We've got the red-white practice going on. It's a scrimmage, essentially. It's a scrimmage. Open to the public. Full pats. 12.45 today. That's going on. We're taking you up to 1 o'clock, so we're going to be on the air for at least the opening portion of that practice. Um, Don't worry. We've got more Cardinals coverage coming after us today. The guys from the Cardinals Corner podcast, Tyler Drake, Eric Ruby, they're going to be here later on today as well. So we're covering all things Cardinals out at training camp. A big day, as uh, Coach JG said, full tilt today. Full tilt. I'm so ready to see them go at one another today. It'll it'll finally feel like football season is here. You know, of course, with the buildup of training camp and all the news that's been going around, uh, around the NFL, yeah, it feels like it's here. But to be in the home of the Cardinals, and to watch them practice and go like on a full tilt scrimmage, it's starting to feel real, Steve. And to watch the field inch slowly into oh the uh, stadium. This is the best part. I told you I've never witnessed this before. This is a process that takes, I've been told, about 45 minutes. Yeah, we have our we have our sources uh, within, <laughs> within the Cardinals organization. And I guess today is a little bit different. They're bringing the full field in. I guess they don't do that every day because they do have a separate area for some uh, different training they normally do. But because today is essentially a game, being a scrimmage, the red-white practice, uh, the public will be filling in here in just a little bit. We're excited to watch some football. Of course, that's not even the top story of the day today. Which, which is a bummer, because I'm really excited to talk about football, and we're going to in the next segment, but we cannot ignore what has happened. I'll reset it to three weeks ago, Steve. Three weeks. Three weeks ago. Pac-12 Media Day, which was the Thursday three weeks ago. George Klyovkov took the podium and told the entire world, basically, for the sake of its football, I should clarify, that the Pac-12 is the strongest it's been in decades. And we laughed when he said it. We did laugh. We knew that was not, that's mostly uh, what we call coach speak. I know he's not a coach, but yeah. that, that's executive speak. You have to say that. It, it, I compared it at the time to why does every president of the United States start the State of the Union address by saying, the State of the Union has never been, been better. <laughs> yeah, like why do they say that? Because if they go up there and say the opposite, everyone panics. Everyone's going to be like, oh, shoot. If he'd wow. gone up there okay. and said, hey, uh, you know what? We don't have a media rights deal yet. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, a bunch of our schools are going to jump ship in the next three weeks. Well, <laughs> we all would have panicked, and probably rightfully so. So he says that he does not present a media rights deal. He wanted the day to be focused on football. Well, guess what? Colorado was apparently a little more focused on the meteorites deal. One week later, they're back in the Big 12. Now, fast forward from that week ago to yesterday. Arizona State, Utah, and Arizona are now in the Big 12. And Oregon and Washington are now in the Big 10. So three weeks ago, three weeks ago, (laughs) the conference that was going to be a Pac-10 in 2024 is now set to be a Pac-4. Like that. Right. Yeah, and listen, it's not that I didn't expect a lot of this to go down at some point. It just feels so sudden that the Pac-12 is no longer. I mean, forget about a Pac-4. I mean, and we'll get to some of what Michael Crow said here in a little bit, but Mm -hmm. essentially one of the points he made this morning out at ASU's practice was that's not a viable conference. 
at some point you have to make decisions that are in your best interest. They may not even be a good option, which, by the way, I don't even necessarily think from a football perspective that the Big 12 is a great conference. I don't think that. In terms of football, sure. Even with U of A, ASU, Colorado, and Utah is a pretty good football program, even with them going to the Big 12, I'm not sold on that as a conference. We'll we'll talk more about it later, but I love it from a basketball perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Really, what this feels like is it feels like ASU got backed into a corner because they wanted to be involved with the Pac-12 as it stood. And really, according to Michael Crow, it was the acts of other schools that led him to make the decisions that he made. Let's get right to what you're hinting at. So I want to shout out uh, Brad Denny, who does great work for the Speak of the Devils podcast, has done a great job covering the Sun Devils in his many years covering them. He has the sound available to us through Twitter. Uh, This is about a minute long, but it's really important what Dr. Crow says here. Uh, On the subject of their move to the Big 12, not being driven by finances, but rather by viability. Uh, And so it's often the case in the media that the media thinks that the measurement of the success of our program is the media contract and the share per school. The media contract is a fraction of our revenue relative to ASU athletics, even relative to football athletics and other athletics. And so we've got lots of revenue sources. We were very interested at ASU on finding a way to connect to more people uh, and, and so forth. But we have to be in a viable conference to do that. And once uh, Oregon and Washington decided to go to the uh, Big Ten, the conference was no longer viable. And so viability meant you can't be un- you can't be in a non-viable position for more than a few hours in our mind. So we resolved that. So was the Washington uh, the Oregon departures the kind of the final straw? Yesterday morning at 7 a.m. was another call meeting of the uh, Pac-12 presidents, and some schools didn't show up, so you might know that then, therefore, the conference is no longer viable. Did you say how many didn't show up? Two. No. And there's two. no secret as to which two schools Dr. Michael Crow was referring to this morning. Yeah, once Oregon and Washington decided to jump ship for the Big Ten uh, and didn't show up for their Zoom call in the morning with the rest of the Pac-12 presidents, they pretty much sent the message, we're, we're jumping ship, we're out. And I understand why they did yeah, that. You, in, in all reality, based off of what we've seen as a result of this conference, whether you want to blame the current commissioner and George Klyovkov or you want to blame the former and Larry Scott, the conference was no longer viable. And Michael Crow will say it's, it wasn't about the money. It was just about the strength of the conference. It was also about the money. Let's, yeah. let's not sugarcoat it. Well, I mean, they got that deal from Apple, the streaming deal, which I'm guessing was based on the standing of the Pac-12 as it was, not as it w- becomes. But there was also the report, too, of the subscriber-based model to help incentivize, and that's right. not appealing to some of these schools that rely so heavily on the media rights. Not deal. without Oregon and Washington, Definitely two of your not. better football programs, certainly, and decent basketball programs as well. Um, So once those two schools, which I think were probably the two best programs overall in terms of athletics, they were probably the best two left in the pack at this point in time, considering UCLA and USC are already scheduled to go to the Big Ten. So I think actually the Big Ten did a better job of poaching the pack than the Big 12 did. The Big 12 gets U of A, which is a great basketball school. ASU, which is eh, I guess, at both. Utah's a good football program. Colorado, we'll see. Um, but I think that the Big Ten really scored big here. They get Oregon, huge dollar school. I think Washington's going to be very good for them in, in both sport, both primary sports. And we should talk about the minor sports, too, as well. Well, so we brought it up last night on the State of the Sun Devils podcast after the news became official. Softball in the Big 12 just got a massive boost 
for the 2025 season when that rolls around. You think about how good Pac-12 or Pac-12 softball has been. Big 12 softball, especially with Oklahoma, but now Oklahoma leaving for the SEC. Right. With Oklahoma, they have been a mainstay for years and years when it comes to that sport. That's the other thing too is we talk about the geography of college sports and the conference shakeups because it's been a long time since West Virginia joined the Big 12, and we all kind of went, well, that doesn't make sense. That's an East Coast school in right. a South division, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Texas A&M join the SEC. That wasn't super far-fetched. Then you've got schools like USC and UCLA joining the Big 10. Geographically, doesn't make any sense. Of course not. Here's where it plays a role, because I think everyone just kind of thinks in terms of football usually, and they just play mostly on Saturdays. Yes. You can make a road trip work across country on a Saturday. Many yeah. schools do it. But if you're a softball player, if you're a basketball player, if you're any other smaller sport than football, and you have a game on a Tuesday night, and now you're an in-conference opponent with UCF, who plays in Orlando, Florida. Three time zones away, two time zones away even. That's a four-hour and 20-minute flight to Orlando on a Tuesday. And you got to be back for class on Wednesday. I mean, you see how it impacts the athlete, not just the fan base. Well, so I've even thought, and this wasn't an original idea by me by any means. I saw somebody else throw out the idea. I can't remember who, so I apologize to the individual that put it out there on Twitter. Would the players consider unionizing? You think about how Boy, conferences have realigned so much just within just within the past two weeks, specifically to where these Pac-12 schools or formerly Pac-12 schools are now going to be next year. You just mentioned the geography and the toll it's going to take on some of these players. Players are now able to get compensated for the work that they do through different companies. You have to think it's sooner or later that, yes, there have been attempts in the past, but it has to be in consideration, you would assume, if these players want to protect the integrity of not just the game that they play, but themselves, especially as 18, 19, some of them even young as 17-year-olds. Right. We talked last week, I think, about some of this. And my idea, I, I think where the college football landscape is heading is we're going to have two, maybe three mega conferences with all the best, biggest programs. And the other ones are just going to be left fending for themselves. We're already kind of seeing that just this week. Yep. And... I say that because I think the Big Ten got four really good programs out of the Pac-12. I think the Big 12 got four eh schools, and I think that they did it because they were in reaction mode to losing Oklahoma and Texas. I'll even equate it roughly to, I mean, this is like when Mikel Bridges shows up for his first day with the Brooklyn Nets and says, hey, I get to play with Kevin Durant, right? And they're like, oh, no, actually, we traded him for you. He's not on the team. Well, at least I get to play with Kyrie Irving, right? Uh, Oh, actually, um... we traded that guy. (laughs) He's on the Mavericks now. It's like, okay, I guess I'm the big dog now. That's kind of how I feel about some of these moves to the Big 12 is like with Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big 12 still doesn't impress me except in basketball we'll go deeper into this the next time we hit on this uh, big move that is happening in college sports but I have to point out to you the year that Brett Yormark has had in just his one year as commissioner of the Big 12 it's astounding what he was able to accomplish in just one year. And George Klyovkov's year? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Might be coming to an end. Coming up next we are live from State Farm Stadium for the red and white practice We do know that we won't see Kyler Murray, but is there a different quarterback we're hoping to see impress us today? We'll tell you who that is next here on Arizona Sports Saturday. 
with a new head coach, GM, and without some of last year's key starting players, the 2023 Cardinals are coming into camp fresh and new. Cards Camp, dawn of a new era. This is the dawn of the new era. Cardinals training camp coverage presented by Bud Light. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. On the Arizona Sports app and 98.7. That's right. We are out at Cardinals training camp. The red-white practice going on this afternoon, 1245, open to the public. Steve Zinsmeister and Mitch Varell this with you up until 1 o'clock. The Cardinals uh, corner podcast guys are going to be here a little bit later, too. They'll be on during the majority of that practice. The field getting set right in front of our eyes right now as the uh, staff is getting ready for that practice. And the one notable thing that you won't see at this particular practice this year, Mitch, is the starting quarterback. Kyler Murray obviously has missed um, you know, a lot of different activities throughout the course of the uh, offseason because of his injury at the tail end of last year. And because of that, that means we're going to see work from several different quarterbacks, key of which... The fifth-round draft pick, Clayton Toon, might be the one I'm most intrigued by. He's certainly been the one getting all the headlines uh, here at camp, whether it's by you know his play on the field or the things that he said off of the field. And just just starting with that, knowing how um, what's the word I want to use here? Is brash the word? Is confident the word that I want to use. I, I want to Confidence support, is definitely something I want to support Toon because I'm intrigued by the, by the idea of him actually starting week one and the possibility of that being a reality. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think I said that on our show a couple weeks ago that I, I'm more intrigued by seeing Clayton Toon start games than I am Colt McCoy. I mean, we still have yet to kind of see a lot of Colt, so I, I don't even know if that decision's on the horizon yet. It's probably something that they'll tackle when they get to it. Well, so it's been pointed out that Colt... He, there's some of the practices he hasn't participated in. Right. Other practices, he'll go through the reps, but then he won't throw the ball. Yeah. And I would think that as a quarterback, that throwing the ball is kind of a part of the job description. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a key thing that a quarterback does. Yeah, so I just wonder what is going... I, I mean, I don't need to know, but you just wonder what is going on with Colts well, that he's not throwing the ball even in just basic reps without getting tackled. I just think at this point in his career, we know who Colt McCoy is. And it's not a bad quarterback. It's no. a guy who's more than capable of winning games as a backup, uh, it, you know, just to kind of hold over until you get your starter back. The problem is we don't know when that is. Is he going to have to play six games? Is he going to have to play half the season? Is it just a week or two? I mean, we really don't know yet. Um, and, you know, the Cardinals have been lucky over the years. They've had a lot of good backup quarterbacks. I like Drew Stanton a lot. He won some key games when Carson Palmer had to miss time due to his knee injuries and different yep. things. Um, my thing is, I know who Colt McCoy is, and it's not bad. It's just, I think his floor is a lot higher than Clayton Toon's. Clayton Toon could come out there, and he could look like a total rookie. And that's understandable, because he is a rookie. Right. But he could also go out there and light the world on fire in a way that I don't think Colt McCoy would. Because we've seen him, we've seen him in this organization, we've seen him in other organizations. I just think the ceiling might be higher for Toon, but also the floor could be a lot lower. I will point out, Clayton Toon was getting some run with the, uh, the first group in practices earlier this week. At the same time, he was also getting some run with the twos. But the fact that he's getting run in with the ones would hint necessarily that maybe he's on track just for the preseason. He's maybe on track to start the preseason. Here was Toon earlier in the week. If he feels like he's on the right track to start an NFL game, 
I would say I got to just keep working every day. Um, you know, every day I have to get better, have to focus on something to get better at and, and focus on for that practice. You know, whether it's a walkthrough, a practice, a film session, I have to focus on a couple, one or two things, you know, that I really want to dial in and get better at. And I feel like if I do that every day, I put myself in a good, good spot. He's got the confidence, but it sounds like he's walked back how strong that confidence came off, like after he was initially drafted by the team. <laughs> well, I think he was probably uh, pulled aside by whether it was, you know, coaching staff or, or yeah. others and said, hey, listen, man, dial it back. We love we love that you're ready to go and that you have confidence in your own abilities. But, like, come That's on, That's a Rocky. huge aspect of being an NFL player is having yeah. confidence in your own abilities. Um, but sometimes you do have to take a look around and realize your place. Um, but I am excited by what Clayton Toon could add to this team. I think there is a reason that this organization and the new front office decided to go and draft a quarterback in the fifth round, which I don't want to say it's a throwaway. I know that most really, really great quarterbacks get picked earlier. I think Clayton Toon brings a lot to the table that they saw in the fifth round that maybe other organizations just weren't looking at, and I'm excited to see what he's got. I mean, last year they played David Blau. Uh, Jeff Driscoll has seen time at the NFL level. Yeah. There's not really a lot of reasons to look around and say, we're not going to play that guy because he's a rookie. I agree with you. It's not a throwaway, but it is kind of intriguing knowing that your normal starting quarterback is going to be missing at least one game. Let's let's not put too many on it. We know for assumptive reasons that he's probably going to miss one game this regular season at minimum. For them to take a quarterback in the fifth round, I agree it's not a throwaway, but if there's intrigue because you would assume that Colt McCoy would have just been the obvious choice to back up Kyler in the meantime. And then you bring back David Blau, who started a couple of games to close out last year. As you mentioned, Driscoll has some NFL experience with multiple different teams. So the intrigue of drafting Toon is what stood out to me. Not the fact that he was a fifth rounder, but the fact that he was drafted by this team at all. I don't know why I feel this way, but you know, I've been saying this to you for at least the last couple of weeks. I just have this feeling that Kyler Murray's going to be back sooner than people think. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I keep seeing all these other athletes like Russell Wilson coming back way earlier than scheduled or Bryce Harper's back on the field after only, you know, like eight months after he had surgery or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know if that's it's just the context of sports medicine and the improvements that they've made or I don't know what it is. But for some reason, I just have this feeling, this inkling inside that Kyler Murray is going to be back sooner rather than later. I don't know what that means even. Could it be two weeks into the season, six weeks into the season? The problem is we don't even have a baseline. It's no. not like we were told you know, he's probably not going to be back till halfway through. He's probably going to miss the full season. Nobody set that marker so anything earlier than that it could just be the norm. I mean, the closest comparisons we have are quarterbacks on different teams and how they recovered from ACL tears and severe knee-related or leg-related injuries. And to be honest, the most recent comp that I can think of off the top of my mind is probably Robert Griffin III. I don't think he was ACL, correct me if I'm wrong, but they kind of rushed him back into it, and that kind of led to the downfall of what was supposed to be a grand career for a guy that won the Heisman won the Rookie of the Year, and was on pace to be the the savior of the then-Washington football team, the then-Washington Redskins even, it's meant to be their next guy. I don't want to see that happen to Kyler. I want Kyler to make sure that he is fully comfortable with himself, but I also want the approach from the training staff and the medical staff 
to be conscientious of the idea that this guy is responsible for the next at least five years of success for this football team. So here's the question then. Because you're right. They're going to want to take things slow. They're going to want to make sure he's got his feet under him before they throw him out and put his feet to the fire. What happens if the training staff and the organization decide to slow roll this thing? Hey, you know what? He probably could play, let's say, week four. But we're going to hold him out a couple of extra weeks just to be safe, just to make sure, just to get more practice time in with the guys. What if they decide to do that and Kyler says, no, I'm ready to go right now. I'm ready to win some games. I mean, this is a dramatically different team with Kyler than without. And you and I and the rest of the media and the rest of the fans may not have super high expectations for the Cardinals going into this year. I mean, people are talking about, could they get the first and second pick in the draft next year? I don't want to have those conversations. So the players don't view things that way. Kyler wants to be back ASAP. Kyler wants to be playing ASAP. And what happens if he feels ready to go, the doctor clears him, and he could play, let's say, week four, week two, week three, whatever it is, and the team says, no, we want to slow roll this thing because we want to make sure we get it right. Hmm. That could create some tension there, but we'll see how they go about handling it. Look, whatever thought process they have for these two first-round picks that they're going to have next year, Whatever plan they have for this season, whatever they're really wanting to do, they'll never tell us. No. Only they will know what their plan is for this year. I think it would be a massive mistake to just throw away another year with Kyler Murray. Even if it means opportunities for the next year, we've seen, we'll take, we'll take Deshaun Watson as the most recent example, we've seen that time away from football does not benefit you whatsoever. I get it. Watson's situation was vastly, vastly different to Kyler's situation right now dealing with a major injury. Do not just let him sit if he's ready to go. Please. Let him go out there, make any mistakes that he may or may not make, or lead you to success that you would hope that he leads you to. You need to understand what Kyler Murray is going to be for you now, and if you end up with the number one overall pick and you decide that maybe this isn't the way we want to go, then make that decision. But don't make that decision because you didn't give Kyler Murray the opportunity to prove you wrong. Mitch and I are here live at State Farm Stadium for Cardinals red-white practice going on today, 1245. It's open to the public. Come on out. Watch the Cardinals. It's your first opportunity to get a good look at uh, some of the guys that are going to be playing this year. And so that's at 1245, open to the public. We'll take you all the way to 1 o'clock today. But coming up next, ASU, U of A, heading out of the Pac-12 and into the Big 12. But are people excited about that or not? That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Mitch Farrell, this is Steve Zinsmeister. Trevor Henry is back in the auction community studio. Steve and I are out here at State Farm Stadium getting you ramped up and ready for the Cardinals' red and white practice. Just want to pass along. Parking is free. Uh, you can park your cars on the east side in the green and gray lots or on the west side in the orange lot. Uh, the parking lots are open right now, so you can start making your way over, start parking. We checked. We parked. <laughs> if, uh, if you don't have tickets, um, they are free. You can get up to four. If you want tickets, head on over to www.azcardinals.com slash camptics. That's C-A-M-P-T-I-X. And then gates will be open for season ticket members at 1145. 
everybody else at 12.15 entering through Gate 1 or Gate 2 or Gate 3. You know, one of my favorite things about coming out and being here early before the red-white scra- uh, practice, mm-hmm. I almost want to say scrimmage and practice in the same word, and that Scract- could have been weird. Scractus? <laughs> Primage? One of the cool things is watching the staff get ready, and they're testing literally everything about the stadium, but yeah. nobody's in it. So, it's like, eerie. <laughs> you and I are talking about the Pac-12 here in a second, and you'll just hear like blaring music in the background. They've, they're testing the smoke machines over there on the end zone side I can of the field. See the siren over there, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's nobody here, so that's kind of awesome to see them doing their. Jobs I think like I remember that. last year. You weren't here for the last year's version, uh, but they were doing the tunnel run test, oh. and it was just members of the uh, Spirit Squad basically that's running awesome. out like. And, and now it's DJ Humphreys. And there's some, one of <laughs> but the there's no DJ Humphreys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, so we're here for that. Excited for that. Uh, we're going to talk to Kyle Soleil uh, at the top of next hour, the rookie linebacker for the Cardinals. ASU. ASU yeah. Arizona, like through and through as far as his football career. yeah. Can't wait to ask him about that. And then we're going to be joined by the uh, fellows with the Cardinals Corner podcast with Arizona Sports Eric Ruby and Tyler Drake. Fantastic. And then they will do an hour-long show after we're done from 1 to 2. So we got you fully covered today in terms of all things Cardinals. But we cannot ignore what has happened in the last uh, 24 hours, maybe even 12 hours, really. ASU, Arizona, and Utah are headed for the Big 12. Oregon and Washington are headed for the Big 10. Those will take effect in 2024. Steve, in the last time we talked about this, in the last time we talked about this, I teased... Brett Yormark, the commissioner of the Big 12, and the year that he has had as commissioner of the Big 12. Are you ready for this? Yeah, go ahead. He became commissioner on August 1st, 2002. So literally a year, okay? A year to the date almost. 2022? 2022. You said 2002. Did I? I was like, that was not a year ago. Okay. August 1st, 2022. August 1st, 2022. Copy. He became the commissioner of the Big 12. Three months later, in October... Your mark got the media rights deal that he has with ESPN and Fox. Something the Pac-12 never did. And now fast forward to today. He lost Texas and Oklahoma, but then turned around and added Cincinnati, UCF, BYU, Houston, ASU, U of A, Utah, and Colorado. Yeah. In a year, yeah. Steve. So uh, listen, I hear you. I hear you. They did a lot of things. Uh, they did a lot of things that were kind of reactionary, I think, because when you lose your top two programs, which is what Oklahoma and Texas are to the Big 12, they were their top two programs, and they still will be for the next year, um, which is what makes most of this movement awkward, by the way, is the fact know. that all these conferences are going to remain the same this year, and then we just have to wait a year for all these things to take place. I don't know. Texas wasn't even the most successful school in the Big 12 in their own state. Not necessarily, year. but would anybody argue that they're not a top two like substantial program in the Big 12? All it is is pedigree. There's a reason the SEC wanted them. Sure, but it's just pedigree reasons. It has nothing to do with their recent athletic success. No. uh, Guess what? They don't have any recent athletic success. Yeah, when was the last time they won something of significance? I mean, Vince Young Young was quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. I was in high school, I think, when that happened. Exactly. Um, But, yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying about Texas, but you can't deny that that's one of the biggest programs in the entire country, regardless of the success of the football team or the basketball team or anything. And they're also, to my knowledge, they're the only program in the country that got their own media rights deal for a time. They had their own network on TV. Longhorn Network, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, we could talk about the successes or failures of that, but that's the truth. And so I think that the Big 12 did what they had to do. Do I think adding Cincinnati and Houston and UCF and U of A and Arizona even, do I think that's the end-all, be-all? No. 
I don't think the Big 12 is really considered one of the biggest conferences right now. They are in terms of quantity, in terms of quality programs. Where I start to get excited is basketball. Because yes. now U of A, Kansas, I still think Baylor's a good program. Uh, Kansas State was good last year. Uh, there's plenty of other programs that can work their way into that mix, ASU included, in, in a good year. So I think that from a basketball perspective, this conference could be fascinating. From a football perspective, I'm still pretty iffy, especially once you know Oklahoma and Texas are gone, which is going to be next year when all these things take place. So... I don't know, man. I'm not super high on the Big 12 like you might be. Uh, yes, the commissioner's made a lot of moves, and the reason that looks so good to you probably is because the Pac-12 commissioner made none because they sat around and waited and waited and waited and a media rights deal. They waited. Expansion. They waited. They talked about we could expand but never did, and so it just got to the point where the Pac-12 was the conference that other conferences wanted to poach from. But I do want to emphasize that this is not entirely George Klyovkov's fault. He was kind of handed the raw end of the deal when Larry Scott eventually decided to resign. Larry Scott made plenty of mistakes and successes. I do want to emphasize his success in bringing Colorado and Utah over. But he made far more mistakes with this conference than he had successes. And that set up George Klyovkov to fail. But it is also on George Klyovkov for not doing anything about it when he realized that this ship was sinking. There's a leak, and he did really nothing to address it, at least nothing aggressively. Whereas Brett Yormark did exactly the opposite. Brett Yormark went aggressively to save the conference. Like I just said, in a year as the commissioner, he lost two schools, gained six schools, and has a media rights deal that goes through the 2030 season. In a year! Yeah. What has George Klyovkov done in the tenure that he's had since 2021? Nothing. I think the Pac-12 just kind of fell into this level of comfort with what they had, with the schools that they had. I mean, well, if you get comfortable, you're gonna get eaten. I understand. I would, obviously, Clearly. that's what came to pass. Yeah, <laughs> they had a conference that had existed for over a hundred years. Many of these schools and programs wanted to be associated with each other for a significant period of time, and the Pac just kind of falls apart now. I mean, that by the way, that's not even official yet. As of today, the Pac-12 still exists. It's just that there's only going to be four schools in it as of right. Now. And, and can I emphasize something, too? It, it sounds like that I'm just bashing on the Pac-12 and that I'm happy that ASU is out. I'm not happy that the Pac-12 is going to die, basically. This was a conference that I wanted to be a part of coming out of high school. This was a conference that I grew up with when my dad was an alma mater of Stanford. Like, this conference means a ton to me, personally. I am devastated that it is about to die. And my dad's school is going down with the ship. Basically, And imagine, too, if you were a high school athlete right now who had committed to a school like Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, or what's the other one that's left? Cal. Yep. Imagine if you're committed right now to play football, basketball, could be baseball, softball, any sport, swimming, whatever, billiards, um, and you're committed right now. But you did that because that was the only Power 5 school that offered you. And now you look around and you're like... Well, we're clearly not Power 5 anymore. There aren't five power conferences if the PAC is a four, right. PAC 4. What are we? You're looking around right now. You're, you're calling the coaching staff saying, hey, what's going on here? Are you guys going with them to the Big 12? Because if you are, I, I might still go. 
But are you going to the Big Ten? Are you going to the Mountain West? Because I don't want to play in the Mountain West. I want to play in the Power Five. I want to get spotted by some more scouts. I want to have a chance at playing professional football, professional basketball. So a lot of a lot of kids right now, a lot of teenagers are looking around at this and they're saying, what the heck is going on with my school where I was about to throw my future on the line? And today you just don't know what the answer is. I mean, you're likely going to see a bunch of decommitting if if the Pac-12 doesn't have an answer real soon. The only thing that we've seen from the Pac-12 since everything that has happened has happened is a two-sentence statement, and here it is. Quote, today's news, reference to yesterday, today's news is incredibly disappointing for student-athletes, fans, alumni, and staff of the Pac-12 who cherish the over 100-year history, tradition, and rivalries of the Conference of Champions. We remain focused on securing the best possible future for each of our member universities. Unfortunately, I don't think the best possible future for your universities, Pac-12, is in the Pac-12 anymore. I think Stanford and Cal will do whatever they can to remain together, keep their rivalry. They're going to beg to get into the Big Ten. Beg. Big Ten, sure. I think they would beg to do that. Or would they merge into the Mountain West and then the Mountain West becomes the new powerhouse in the West? I, well, I don't know if that makes them a powerhouse necessarily, well, but okay. in the West, I understand where it's you're going It's the in-name only kind of thing. Yeah, and I think part of this, too, you have to remember is Michael Crow is doing this reluctantly. Very reluctantly. He made it clear at practice this morning that he would have preferred for the Pac-12 to stay together. He would have preferred to accept the Apple media rights deal that he thought was revolutionary, that was going to maybe not bring in as, as many dollars as some other deals, but it was likely to bring them in front of more fans, to make their games more accessible, to allow people to be able to go through and archive footage of games. They could go back and watch it whenever they wanted to. This was the way of the future for him. He didn't want to jump into the Big 12, no. but he realized, and, and it was made clear today at ASU's practice, that he and uh, the president of U of A, Robert Robbins, they were in lockstep this whole way, that they were going to go with each other. But And U of A kind of made that first leap, exactly. leaving ASU no other choice but to jump ship from the pack, head to the Big 12, and Honestly, I mean, Michael Crow, I heard this point yesterday. Tim Ring made this point on Burns and Gambo, and it's a good one. Michael Crow doesn't just want to be associated with other great athletic programs. He wants to be associated with the great academic institutions of this country and this region. Stanford, Stanford, Washington, Cal, Oregon, Cal, and even without, USC and UCLA. Without that, you move to the Big 12, knowing the teams that you and I know will be in the Big 12 next year. What are the big academic ex- uh, institutions Big academic institutions like Cal and Stanford in the Big 12. Nothing screams at me in the immediate. Maybe it, that's just my lack of research. I mean, there's but some also, good universities there. Don't get me wrong. You're sure. going to get a good education in the Big 12. But Stanford is Ivy League level education. Literally. On the West Coast. Cal Berkeley. Same sort of thing. So from Michael Crow's perspective, he's thinking bigger picture than just, okay, who are we playing in football on Saturday? And I'm sure just be on football on Saturday and basketball during the winter. He's probably also thinking about all the other athletics programs that ASU has been able to build over the time that he's been there. They brought back women's soccer when Michael Crow took over as president. I'm sure that meant a lot to him. And all of the other Olympic sports that are under Crow's watch and Ray Anderson's watch, they're kind of in limbo now, too. Hockey is the unique one because they're already going to a different conference for athletic reasons, of course. They'll still be a Big 12 school, of course. 
situation. But it makes things kind of hairy for those programs that don't necessarily get the same kind of limelight that football and basketball do. Coming up next, the Arizona Diamondbacks made four trades at the trade deadline, including getting a new closing pitcher. That's awesome. Problem is, they haven't had the ability to use him since. What? Why is that? We're going to talk about it next. It's Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Bereldis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Strike three called on a pitch half a foot outside of the strike zone. Unbelievable. The worst pitch of the at-bat is the one that ends the ball game. And the Twins take the series opener by a final score of 3-2. to two. Chris Garaziola disgusted with the final strike call of last night's Diamondbacks 3-2 loss. Mitch Varela, Steve Zinsmeister back here with you. We are live from State Farm Stadium getting ready for the red and white practice here at State Farm Stadium. Uh, people that are planning to attend, I can already see some fans entering to the seating area. Maybe hoping to see some certain individuals sign some products that they have. I'm seeing one of the players, I can't tell who because they're wearing a hood, getting warmed up on the sidelines there. Starting to feel real, Steve. Football, it's coming back. It's here. Yeah, and it's actually kind of in game form today. We get the red-white scrimmage, which means that uh, we'll see some of the players in action, not just practicing, not just running drills. Um, So it's going to be a really cool day for the fans, and we are starting to see them file in right now as gates just opened. Um, Come on out. 1245 is when the practice starts, and uh, you'll get to see all your favorite Cardinals. When are we going to get to see our favorite Diamondbacks again, Steve? Well, they're playing games. They're just not winning them. They've scored, I think I did the math yesterday. Going into yesterday, I think it was 77 runs since returning from All-Star break. So add the two yesterday, and it's now 79. At the time, that was the 10th fewest since All-Star break Wow! by teams. So they're not scoring runs. They're obviously not winning games. They've lost four in a row now, lost seven of their last ten. Their run differential has now dipped into the negative. It's now a minus five run differential. And they're now 28 and 37 against teams that are above 500 when they face them. And the wild card's starting to slip away. The division almost feels lost to them at this point. The wild card's now starting to slip away from them, too. Yeah, if I'm doing my math right, five wins since the All Star break. What are they, five and 15, something like that? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's pretty bad. I mean, look at it this way. They went and made. I don't want to look at it. Anyway. Uh, I don't want to look at it at all. But we have to because that's what we do here. Uh, they went and made four trades at the MLB trade deadline. Some more significant than others. Granted, they went and got Paul Seawall, the closing pitcher from Seattle, a really good addition to this team. And they gave yes. away three pieces that, while significant, were probably blocked in a lot of ways from contributing to this team right now. They were expendable. Yeah, they were very expendable, and, and not in a bad way. In a in a we have other guys who do similar things kind of way. So we love the Seawall trade. And then you add Tommy Pham from New York because they're selling off everything that breathes. And then you get uh, the Andrew Chafin deal was a little odd, but at least they get a a reliever in return who's got a ton of control through 2029. And they make these moves, and they haven't even really been able to capitalize on that. Tommy Pham hasn't been spectacular, although it's been a small sample size. Uh, You know, Obviously, Streslecki, who they got in the Chafin deal, is still in the minors, not contributing right now. And they haven't even used Paul Seawald yet. They haven't been able to get into a situation where they would need Paul Seawald, which is the most astounding thing. And it actually makes it kind of hilarious, where we're complaining this whole time about how the bullpen is starting to get at the Diamondbacks, per se, so they get a closer. 
awesome. Finally, they have someone we can rely upon in the ninth. If you can get to the ninth inning, yeah. if you can get to Paul Seawald, what was the game against the Giants the other day where Miguel Castro gives up the, the tie-breaking home run in the seventh inning? doesn't matter if you have Paul Seawald if you can't get to him in time. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And to be honest with you, especially at the tail end of the San Francisco series, uh, the first game against Minnesota yesterday, the Diamondbacks have gotten pretty good starts out of their starting pitchers. And they're leaning heavily, heavily young in the rotation, as we know, even more so than at the beginning of the season. Yeah. And so you get strong outings out of Brandon Fott had his best outing since coming up to the major leagues. He's been up about three. Is this his third time up, fourth time up? And he had his best outing. He's and looked so much better they in had his last three starts. Slade Ciccone's debut, and Tommy Henry's been hurt, but Ryan Nelson. So they've had some good outings lately and just can't capitalize on it because the offense has been completely stagnant. They in make it, are they in make-it-or-break-it range right now for you? If you think about I'm going I'm to explain why. This one weekend is probably the Diamondbacks' best opportunity to get back in it, and already they're off to a horrible start. Here's why. The Dodgers are playing the Padres in San Diego. If you want to keep the Padres off of your ass, you need the Dodgers to win. Dodgers did their job Forget about catching the Dodgers. Right. Forget about catching the Dodgers. Just focus on the wild card, because that's probably the only realistic option left for the Diamondbacks this year. Dodgers won last night. They did their job. Diamondbacks failed to do their job. But you at least stay separated from the Padres in the meantime. The Cubs, who are now a half game behind the Diamondbacks. That scorching hot streak that the Cubs went on, that really helped them out. They're playing Atlanta this weekend. Uh, they got shut out yesterday, 8 nothing. but right now it's the top of the second, and the Cubs are up 5 nothing. So <laughs> Chicago's off to a great start right now against the Major League's best team. Miami, they're taking on Texas. Texas, the second-best team in the American League. Texas beat them last night. Texas did their job, but guess what? You don't gain any ground on Miami when you also lose. Cincinnati is playing against Washington. Washington had a great comeback victory against the Reds yesterday, but it doesn't matter because the Diamondbacks didn't win. And then Philly's going against Kansas City, who just swept the Mets, but I don't know what to think of the Mets anymore. They're kind of a mess. I don't know. The problem is is that if you don't capitalize in this series against the Twins while these other teams are facing much harder competition... You're not going to get back into this. Because guess what, Steve? You come home next week, two games against the Dodgers, three games against the Padres. Yeah, that's the next homestand. And And that might be the nail in the coffin. What's funny and and kind of ironic about this conversation is you talk about trying to capitalize against the Twins. Normally, I agree with you. That's a first-place team right now, too. Yes. The Twins are a first-place team in a bad division. I get it. Exactly. I get it. But that's a team that's over 500. That's not a scrub team by any means. But you and I are looking at how difficult the schedule is the rest of the way for the Diamondbacks. Well, guess what? And the Twins are one of the easier series. They have the same record as the Diamondbacks, but they have a plus 34 run differential. So maybe they're underperforming. But this feels like a team that they could beat. But they can't. Let me they read can't. you. Let me read you what I would consider the easy opponents the rest of the way. Okay. Okay. Colorado. You get three games against Colorado in mid-August. Is at, that home or away? Away. away. Oh. Ugh. The next okay. easy series I would say is against Colorado at Chase Field, September fourth. Three which, games there. Which by then it might be too late. I don't know if the Mets are easy or not, but you get the Mets for four games in mid-September, and that's pretty much it. 
Maybe Chicago White Sox at the end of the season. You get three games in Chicago. Uh, that's the second to last series of the year. Like There's the, maybe, maybe ten games on the schedule that I'm like, those are easy. Arizona still has to face the Cubs twice. And the Cubs are coming on hot to close the year. They bought at the deadline, and they're already getting the most out of their deadline acquisitions. Like You get Houston. You get the Yankees. You get the Orioles. Oh Those are gosh. three of the American League's best teams. You get the Texas Rangers for two games. And the Yankees aren't even considered good this year, but they're four games over five hundred, three and a half out of a wild card spot. So listen, it's not all doom and gloom, right? I mean, the Diamondbacks could just as easily play the way they did in April and May than the way they did in June and July. But the problem they is... They could, but they're not. The pro- yeah, that's the problem is you would have to flip the switch in order to do that. Clearly, they've flipped that switch off at some point in the middle, uh, probably late May, early June, is when they kind of started to go that direction. Right. There's a lot of moving pieces to this. It's not like the entire team just shut down. It kind of feels that way. Um, Corbin Carroll hasn't been great, or at least not the level of great that he was before the All-Star break, after the All-Star break. None of them have been great after Gurriel the All-Star break. Lourdes fell off of the face of the earth in June and July. Um, they've had a lot of struggles in their starting rotation. Obviously, Merrill Kelly missed time. Tommy Henry's missing time. They're relying on a lot of rookies, including Slade Ciccone, who just made his debut. So there's a lot of moving pieces to this. The bullpen's been a disaster at times. You just acquired a really good reliever in Paul Sewald. I still want to see him used at some point. Maybe today is the day, finally. Um, but Game 2 against Minnesota today in Minnesota. And that game uh, looking like 4-10, but... Uh, I don't know, man. This team is just faltering at every step. Five wins since the All-Star break? That was nearly a month ago. That has to be the fewest in the majors, right? Since All-Star break, five wins? Five. Five, as Gambo said all those years ago. It's it's very tough to watch what was supposed to be a very fun team or what has been a very fun team to watch, particularly in the first half. But I think getting swept by the Mets before the break – and then dropping that final game of the series against the Pirates, that kind of became the turn, almost. In and the you season. can't even put it on the starting pitching anymore. No. For a long time, we put it on that because we went into this season knowing that they were not fully prepared with a, a great starting rotation. They still had Madison Bumgarner in the rotation at that point. At the time, yeah. And so we went in with a lot of question marks in the rotation, but they're they're actually getting some decent starts out of guys at this point in the season. So you've got to start pointing the finger the other direction. The offense has been atrocious since the All-Star break. And they that need to fix needs it. to pick up. They need to fix it. Hey, really excited about uh, what's happening next. So stick with us for the second hour of Arizona Sports Saturday because we're going to lead off with a local guy. And a guy who gets to play for his hometown team. And a guy that we got to watch a lot at ASU. He is Kyle Soleil, rookie linebacker for the Cardinals. We'll get to talk to him next here on Arizona Sports Saturday.